Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we arcanely read the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Novelizations are devoted to getting you that thrill. By hook or by crook, these books will try to convey to you how big and bad a Hollywood action sequence is. Sometimes they succeed, and other times they really fall short. Running to 300 pages of credulous love for their characters and absolute fidelity to the cinematic adventure, novelizations will never, ever let you forget that you are tuned into an epic. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. My name is Ethan Warren. My name is Hannah Blackman. Noah is a 2014 biblical epic directed by Darren Aronofsky. It follows Noah, the biblical Noah, a descendant of the biblical first man, who, bearing witness to that biblical moral decay of humanity, receives visions from, you guessed it, the biblical God, mm-hmm. that he will lead the animals and beasts of the earth through a looming apocalypse. The cataclysm There's some big that awaits, names in this movie. Yeah. God himself. God himself. Nah. People are name kind of the dropping. Biggest. You know People I mean? are name dropping Adam. Yeah. And then all the people in between that if you have never read the Bible, you're like, hmm, what happened with them? Uh, uh, here's the thing I kept thinking during this. We'll, we'll talk more about it during the discussion, er, during <laughs> the actual discussion. But uh, everyone keeps talking about how they're the line of Seth. Uh, then we go really far back in this lineage. We're talking about grandfathers and great grandfathers. Uh, when's Seth coming up? How, how long great, the earth been around? Great. great all right. Great? I just kept thinking a character was going to pop in and go, and of course, I'm Anthony Hopkins' dad, Seth. Well, we'll I'm sure cover our backgrounds on all of these questions. The cataclysm that awaits, he sees, Noah, the Noah, sees, is a flood that will submerge the entire earth. God's way forward is for Noah to build a giant ark on which two of every animal will be ferried so that Earth's creatures may be reborn in the era after humanity. You may be familiar with the concept of this story. Who knows? I really wrote it for someone who didn't know about Noah and his ark. I respect it. It would be funny, though, if you were like, Noah is about the story of Noah and his ark. End of sentence. What was the one where you guys got really mad at me? There was one I wrote where you guys were like, (laughs) people know what Star Wars is about or something. (laughs) Yeah, it was a Star Wars for sure. Did I just Um, learn that Hannah doesn't write these that she reads? mm -mm. Oh, absolutely. Andrew writes everything. I read them cold. I juice them up with my own special touch. But she sometimes (laughs) skips really good jokes I wrote because she doesn't like them. That's correct. I am a creature of free will, as God gifted me. Okay. Mm. Will Noah and his family be able to avoid the wrath of their fellow man, whom they intend to condemn to a horrible death? And will the launch of the Ark be the end of Noah's trials? Or will he be faced with even more horrific sacrifices upon the sea that was once creation? And then there's another thing that happens to Noah. (laughs) That's never I forgot to write the paragraph that's usually here. Uh, The novelization of Noah was uh, written by Mark Morris based on the screenplay written by Darren Aronofsky and Ari Handel. It was published by Titan Books in 2014. Our guest today, one of the hosts of the Immunities podcast, a podcast that I have been told is about the survivors of a body snatcher invasion. And when I tried to dig for more information and say, Tell me about that before I intro you, good sir. I was teased with, you'll get that information on the episode. Bob Kester, how are you doing today? 
And can I have that information? I'm doing great. Yeah, it's uh, a serialized, you know, fictional story, you know, the parts done by actors that I uh, write, direct, produce. And uh, it was conceived as sort of like a one-third science fiction, one-third horror, one-third comedy sort of thing, you know, in kind of a Shaun of the Dead sort of way that, you know, for some people, like their lives when like 99% of the world has been taken over by body snatchers are kind of analogous to the lives they'd be living anyway. Like my main character is like <laughs> a 19-year-old like sort of overstayer at home, like who's suddenly like she and her parents seem to have different values, you know, and... Uh, She's not sure what she wants to do with her life and whether she wants to, like, you know, go to the extra expense of moving out just because her entire family's been taken over by body snatchers. And, uh, but most people who, like, then see it just come back to me with, that was horrifying, you know? So the, the comedy apparently just exists to, like, provide relief and not so much, you know, the yucks. I have a question further mm-hmm. about this premise, which is, if the premise is that people are being body snatched, how much establishment is there as to what their personalities are like pre-snatch? Um, we, uh, I do a little bit of uh, flashback for that, just a very little bit, you know, so you can get some sense of that. And then sort of the, the, the inciting incident of the, because I, I skipped the whole body snatcher invasion itself, because I figure other people mm-hmm. have done that better. And, sure. uh, the inciting incident that sets my, you know, my character on a unique path is that she starts having dreams of her sister, who's been body snatched, as a non-body snatched person who's aware of what's going on around them and telling her stuff that happens during her sister's day and things like that. And uh, so you're getting both sides of that character. And then from that, you can sort of analogize, you know, like what change has come over other people, you know, how they're in some ways like her sister is like kind of a snit in like both versions it's just in different ways and so a snit to her because you know they're sisters mm-hmm. and uh so you know people can so i i guess with that i'm not sure how well i thought if i really thought that through but that is sort of people's way of figuring out like oh some things do survive some things don't fascinating it sounds like uh sounds like it's it's it, it kind of it teases out like the central event which is sort of sort of a, a framework i always enjoy uh bob from flashback to Flash Flood. I'm trying to put too much on the hosting today. A <laughs> little too much sauce. Uh, what is your relationship with the film Noah? This was a, a suggestion for a movie to cover, uh, a suggestion by you. Uh, so when did you first see it, and how do you feel about it? I first saw it yesterday. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I read the book about two months ago, like uh, shortly after we, you uh, agreed to have it on the show. So I, it, it, was a show, it was a movie I always meant to see. And so when I was looking down a list I found of novelizations, you know, and going past the ones you'd already done and the ones that seemed not that interesting, I was like, oh, what a great excuse to finally, you know, to get me to finally see it, because that takes some doing sometimes. And, you know, also an interesting thing probably to talk about. And I was uh, particularly interested in the uh, the uh, films of the world where, you know, it's uh, a book of a movie of a book, you know, sir. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course, in this case, my understanding, I'm not the biggest Bible reader, but my understanding is that the story of Noah in its original form is quite brief. And so this is maybe the only case of text to movie to text we've seen where the amount of text has been 200 x 
You know who has nothing to do with Noah in the Bible? Tubal Cain. Uh, but we'll get yeah. There. Yeah, so, Ethan, are you up on the Bible? I read the story of Noah on my phone an hour ago. Good <laughs> job, nice. Okay, so none of us have any biblical scholarly... Uh, okay, cool. Cool, cool, cool. Good, good, good. I mean, I did, I, go- I did look up... No, go ahead, Bob. I mean, I, I don't have much biblical scholarly stuff about Noah specifically, but I did go through sort of a biblical apocrypha phase. I mean, I, I went to Christian mm-hmm. school, so I had like some Bible knowledge. And then I went through an apocrypha phase entirely because of I was running a Vampire the Masquerade game back in the 90s, as uh, many wayward people were. And that has a lot of, it has a lot of stuff that's rooted in lore about Cain, you know, like sort of like non-biblical, non-canonical legends about Cain and Enoch and stuff like that. So I, mm-hmm. a lot of those names were familiar with me, familiar to me, but not like the way they're used here exactly. But, you know, but I had some conversation with it. Isn't that one of those games that's supposed to be like so complicated it's not worth playing? Uh, really depends. I mean, I think once yeah. I, th- I think you know, you you put in a couple hours and you 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 learned it, and you know, and then you can waste the rest of your life, you know, <laughs> or every weekend for the rest of your life playing it. Good, but it's you know, it's a role playing game, so it, that's what it's really all about—the role playing. Having looked into the story of Noah a little bit today, and very <laughs> cursory research, uh, I my understanding of it is that. It is largely conflict-free. Now, what I mean by that is obviously there is a huge conflict, which is that the guy hear about a flood, drown the earth, he build a boat to get away. He take all the animals, right? So that's hard. I'm not trying to take that achievement away from him. But as far as all of the things that drive the conflict of the movie, uh, because the 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 en- enormous feat of building this arc of coming to terms with the idea that you're having visions and they're real, not something the movie is really interested in grappling with. It, it even literally skips past the building of the Ark for the most part. Uh, and instead, it busies itself with outside pressures. Okay, so uh, the world had to be flooded because humanity was acting badly, so let's get some evil humans in there and... They want to get on the boat, they hate Noah, and blah, 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 or whatever. And then also, of course, in the back half of the movie, all this interpersonal strife within the family. And it seems like it's not a mixed bag like I thought. It seems like all of it is made up. All of it. I mean, I did some also super cursory research of being like, do we even know the name of Noah's wife in the Bible? (laughs) Do we know the name of Shem's wife in the Bible? No. Seems like the answer is no. So yeah, I think a lot of it's just made up. We do have in the Bible Noah getting drunk naked on the beach. I was, yeah, surprised. And honestly, I give Aronofsky a lot of credit for saying this movie is called Noah. It's not called The Flood. So I got to include the other major event of the Noah story. Credit. I got to say, this movie at the end has some of the worst depressed drunk representation I've ever seen. You know what you're not doing when everything's gone to shit and you're drinking yourself into oblivion? You're not pressing your own wine. 
It's too, it's too much. It's too much He's effort. the only one who could do it, man. Even I when he's drunk, he's it. still industrious. You know, he just can't stop being <laughs> Noah, no matter what state he's in. I just oh, ke- kept picturing him in a drunken stupor, you know, walking across grapes with his bare feet. He's like, <laughs> I need more. I need more. Like, you are, it's, it's, I just, I guess this was an issue with olden times. Like, if you really wanted to be a life-ruining lush, and you didn't live in a metropolitan area, you had to create a production line to feed your addiction. Yeah. Here's something Mm -hmm. you'll have to tell me. I don't remember in the movie, in the book, is it established Noah is 600 years old? It is in the Bible. Uh, Yes, I wish that was part of the conversation (laughs) happening in the film. (laughs) That would be fun to grapple with. So, Bob, do I understand correctly that you said that you read the book first, like the hosts of Authorize often do, as opposed to watching the movie first? Oh, yeah, definitely. And that was a deliberate choice, because that's, you know, so often the other way around, because, you know, I often don't decide I'm going to read a novelization until I've seen the movie. So I decided it was, it was good to have that unique experience, you know, like what, when I could. So on its own merits, how did you feel like the novelization held up as a book uh how did you feel like it started and 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 how did you feel like the momentum of the story carried through um as a book it felt well it felt really uh, you know it, it it uh it really moves along i'll say as a book you know because i'm not it's been a long time since i've read novelizations and i think they do tend to be a little less wordy than your average novels and uh and this really like it was like you know scene 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 you know time going by um mm-hmm. I thought it was actually a little more preachy than the movie is, which kind of surprised me, like, when I finally saw the movie. Like, you know, it really hits the vegetarianism thing a little harder than the movie does, I think. Definitely. Maybe because you don't have the actual images of the animals being gutted and stuff like that. Maybe he felt because of that you needed, like, a little extra verbiage, you know, to to fill in for that. something. But I thought it was I thought it was entertaining. I mean, it was sort of an I, I was sort of in an, an analytical mode as I was reading it, you know, because I knew that the movie was coming up. But I mean, I certainly, you know, I I, I read it all really quickly, and you know, ne- my attention never really wavered. And I thought it had some good characters. I mean, you know, Methuselah is my easily my favorite in both versions. <laughs> Methuselah, so hungry for berries, give the man a berry. <laughs> what a delightful old scamp. Ethan, you nine hundred and some years old. <laughs> wow! And looking, Hannah's hot. really committed to the Bible is a literal text. She's really <laughs> going in on that this episode. I mean, we've discussed this a little between the two of us, perhaps not on the podcast. But as much as I am not religious, was not raised in a religion, I am kind of entranced by like religious mysticism and the sort of medieval reality of religion wherein like in 1200 people were like yeah that shit real (laughs) every day and active in our lives which is what's happening you know it with noah his life is active god is here every day speaking to me and therefore being 600 years old is just like part of the way the world i'm willing to take that at truth and face value within the context of the religious mysticism, you know? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I, I get that a lot of the Bible and the stories are metaphoric and teaching things. 
And I'm okay from a narrative standpoint saying like truth, narratively true, you know, within the stories. It can be both for me. <laughs> I was going to say, so it's the, the, the belief part of it is what makes it special to you rather than just adding all the numbers yeah. up to the, because I know like people, you know, who like anytime you're watching like a Lord of the Rings thing, they're like. 30 years went by between those two scenes, you know? That's sort of <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, no, it's the, the faith and belief and all that stuff is what I'm interested in. And some of that is, if God blesses you, you might live for 900 years. Part of how life worked pre-flood. <laughs> this, this is something I really And then really God said, I'm putting with. a cap on it. This is something I really struggled with as a, uh, as a, child when i was being raised in a in a catholic environment was stories about times when jesus not jesus when god old testament god would really let it be known that he was around and could do shit i really couldn't deal with the idea that he then decided to take a different tact and now he was really letting us, you know, fuck up more and he wouldn't intervene. I, I, I could never make that work for myself as a child. I always thought, well, it'd be easier to believe back then. If he was smiting people and I was seeing the smitings, I'd go, yeah, yeah, God, for sure. I mean, there's a moment in this movie that is really highlighted in the book, and I'm, I'm sure I'll read, where the watchers start dying. And in the book, it says, you know, uh, it, it, they died, and it was this amazing thing that happened, and the, the, their, their uh, sort of uh, ephemeral being visibly shot up into the heavens, and everyone got really jazzed because that meant that heaven was real and they didn't have to worry. And I felt that way as a kid. I went, you know, if, I, if people got hit by cars and then I saw their, their souls shoot up into Jesus' mouth, I'd go, yeah, I'm Christian. I love being Christian. <laughs> Right, but if that happened, then all of the, like, work that makes you worthy of it wouldn't happen. That's the, the tension yeah, there's of no, religion, right? If there's proof, there's no faith. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, thank you, Bob. Well, then what even is the blueprint for being a good Christian in Noah times? How is humanity supposed to act? Better than I mean, this. you have to take the Cain and Abel story as like, that's, that's one of the things where killing other people is bad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the infighting and the anger of all of that comes out of it is, is not in God's light, and you should not behave that way. And within the context of Darren Aronofsky's Noah, clearly the Cain side of humanity has really embraced violence, cruelty, anger in ways that then do not pay off for them. <laughs> and the other mm, thing, right. you know, which they actually mention way late, but the, you know, is that, you know, is the reason the animals are innocent is because they live as they did in Eden, in the Garden mm. of Eden. And so I feel like, and so I guess that's, you know, and this is pretty much just Darren Aronofsky talking, you know, not any other, but that, uh, that's where the vegetarianism comes from. Because I believe, you know, Adam and Eve didn't eat the animals when they were in the Garden of Eden. You know, they just ate and, you know, and vegetables and things like that. And so, I mean, I think a lot of this has to, a lot more to do with, you know, I mean, and this is part two of a lot of biblical movies. This is a lot more to do with Darren Aronofsky thinking about today than it has to do with the Bible. But, <laughs> sure. But he's definitely finding some stuff in there to, like, you know, expound on. What diet does God want these people on? I mean, he doesn't want them eating animals, but then Eve ate that apple. He didn't like that either. 
What's left? I mean, even veganism oh. allows for apples. What are we doing? Well, that was a specific apple. Come on. <laughs> well, you know, like the I'm Mediterranean being willfully diet, you know, obdurate, Hannah. <laughs> I mean, I really appreciate the number of times in this book where the narration says, like, then they ate a very hearty vegetable stew. <laughs> Super nourishing vegetable and lichen stew. They go crazy He's doing with the work. He's getting us there. It's crazy. <laughs> I will convince like, you that vegetables can give you those muscles. I will convince you. <laughs> Just to jump in on the text here, uh, the beginning of chapter two, I think, is a, a very good example of the type of stuff uh, Mike Morris is going to be laying down for 300 pages. It Mark says, Morris. Mark, Mark Morris is going to be laying down for 200, 300. Damn it. Mark, this is a good example of what's in the book. <laughs> Chapter 2, The Hound. The earth was gray and dry, the dust-filled air diffusing the light of the low-hanging red sun. All was dead for miles around, aside from occasional clusters of straggly, colorless shoots that fought to stand up straight against the pitiless force of the swirling wind. The monotony of the endless plain was broken only by occasional clumps of pockmarked rock formations took a breath in the wrong place, forming valleys and canyons, and a hazy row of mountains on the distant horizon. There was no discernible life here. Nothing moved. Or did it? And here's the thing about, I'm checking his name again, Mark Morris. He is putting a lot of effort into this book. He is quite literally painting a picture on each page, trying to paint with his words. Right? That's a really He's, interesting use of the word literally. I stand by it. He's quite <laughs> literally painting. I'm putting a forth a theory that I think he page. paints while he writes. That's what's happening here. Uh, <laughs> two separate activities done in tandem. So anyway... He is painting a picture of, you know, the landscapes, and he's trying to give this feel of everything's huge, everything's epic, imagine adventure, imagine adventure movie. But also, it's a little, especially when you hear it 50 times in a row, it becomes a little empty. Because every, every type of embellishment he gives about uh, where we are or, or, or an area we're entering is grand. Imagine grand. Imagine big. Imagine awe-inspiring. It feels as if eventually he's just telling me, please be impressed. Be impressed now uh, in a way that I eventually got tired of. I'd say mm -hmm. I, I generally didn't quite feel that, uh, I, except when uh, like, uh, like when uh, Noah visits the encampment place, you know, where he's theoretically going to go buy wives. And like the, the like, it just got so purple in that part, in that part. It's like, you know, it just felt like, you know, every single thing there is just poundings, you know, is, is just like this squirming puddle of flesh that's been hit by a hammer, you know, and had sex at the same time. You know, it's just like every single adjective possible is being said. But then I guess at the end that turns out to kind of be a nightmare or something. It's weird anyway. But, you know, that was the one place where I really felt like it was overwritten. But my feeling of the prose is that it's kind of underwritten. I don't think he's actually doing oh. enough. Like he's doing a lot of descriptions. But I don't feel like he's adding anything of import or interest. We're getting through the story, though. You know, I feel like I was not super impressed with the, the writing. 
overwritten came to came to mind for me too um just it 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 felt like he was really taking his time it, really i i had the opposite experience to hannah um it felt <laughs> like he was really taking his time and and luxuriating in in some of these um ideas and images and there's a reason as andrew said this one's a brick um <laughs> And it, it feels like novelizations are often either overwritten or underwritten, and they are not mm. often just written. I think, Ethan, that you can write a novelization that's quite a bit longer than a film and have it be a plus-up if it's adding emotional depth or, of course, if it's literally adding events or something. The, the problem I, I have with this book is... That when it goes over the top, when it goes really into a description, it's just describing setting, right? It's, it's as if every time I watch a scene in the movie, a character does a full 360 first and goes, wow, there's mountains beyond those mountains? Crazy. And a sunset, too, right? It's just not actually giving me insight into the characters and also just not a varied enough beat because the place setting descriptions come so often that it would be more satisfying if it was one scene was, oh my God, Tubal Cain's castle was disgusting and blah, 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 blah. And then the next scene was, you know, about Illa's uh, inner struggle or whatever. But it's all exterior and it's all very samey. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. There was one moment that struck me as like, ah, this is an internal character moment. Um, when Name, is that how we say it? Do we sure. think? Noah's wife. Um, they have an argument and she's like, how do I get him to understand that the world is more than black and white? There must be a third option that isn't we kill everyone. Mm -hmm. I have to go talk to Methuselah. That sort of like internal math she does to go talk to the grandfather. I was like, there it is. We're doing it. Character stuff happening. And then I, it didn't really seem, I didn't have it again. <laughs> I is liked it, that moment, though. Uh, the, the, the thing where she, it, she says uh, she wished there was something she could do, something that might convince Noah that the world is not as black and white as he believed. And, and she's just said she had suggested more than once that perhaps the creator's messages could be interpreted in several ways. But Noah had consistently refused to entertain the notion. I, I feel like Noah mm -hmm. does come off as something of a villain. Obviously, the, the movie plays with that, but the book makes him look really bad. He's so bullheaded, murderous, whatever, and then we get this moment where we learn that he won't even have a discussion about how maybe his interpretation of these very strange visions could be off. It's really hard to be a biblical prophet. <laughs> it's tough, man. I mean, I came out of it feeling that, like, you know, like, closing the book and, you know, no longer having a sense for the exact proportions of things, you know, but looking back on it, I felt like, like, 25% of the character, maybe more than that, of the characterization of the book was of Ham, of all people. Mm. And, you know, and he's not even a character until halfway through, really, but, you know, like, that, like, he was the only person who's in, you know, who, whose reactions to things was, were kind of unpredictable, I guess, and so, like, it seemed mm -hmm. like the book was actually, like, you know, where, like, you know, when the book was like going inside his head where it was a question mark rather than an exclamation point, basically. Mm -hmm. I think the ham stuff is some of the strongest stuff in the book because in the film, as long as the film is, and it is long, it <laughs> is pretty breakneck in 
at least running through events. It's almost too mm-hmm. fast to achieve some of the side character characterization it wants to, where because it's going, then he has a vision, then he makes the arc. The arc's already done, by the way, and then blah, 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 and then this happens, and then, and then now that, you know, we, we were halfway in the movie, but the rain's already happening, and whatever. It, it, I don't feel like Ham's uh, righteous anger against his father is explored very deeply in the movie, whereas in the book, uh, Morris spends so much time in Ham's head, as Bob said, that when Ham really does take revenge on his father, it feels like this creeping dread, this absolute inevitability. I thought it was the one real coup of the novel was making that feel more organic and uh, Mm. sort of unstoppable. Once we're on the arc in the flood, everything with Ham works for me. A lot of before the flood, I'm like, he's just a horny teenager. Be like a little softer with him. (laughs) He's worried about his ability to ever have sex. Like that's... So just sit him down and talk about it for a minute. You don't have to be so mean. Like, I, I appreciate... My heart, difficulty with this movie, and by extension the novel, is it, it the... It's trying really hard to be like, these are real people in a real situation, right? It's like grounded. It's yeah. like awful and hard, and these it's are It's grounded until about halfway through, this. and then it's, it really becomes not grounded, if you catch my meaning. I do, I do, indeed. Um... <laughs> <laughs> So, like, you have this, like, it's grounded, it's serious, how would you handle being asked to kill the whole world? Like, that would be hard on you, right? And it is asking us to have, and the characters, to have, like, absolute faith in Noah in a way that is the sort of way that the Bible handles it, having read very little of the Bible in my life. But the, like, Noah said, we have to build an ark, and his family said, yes, of course, we all believe in you and trust you, and that is that. And the the clash of we utterly believe you and have complete faith in you and in God. And we don't, we have problems with this. It's complicated. Really don't jive for me. And it makes the experience of watching the movie and the experience of reading the book, like real whiplashy for me. Anybody else feel that? Just me? I felt a tension that had me confused, but and it's maybe related to yours, Hannah. I don't know if it's exactly Mm -hmm. the same. I was confused as to Noah's actual motives because he, of course, has the vision that drives the entire whatever, and he's gonna he's gonna do anything he can, including possibly killing his grandchildren to keep the vision alive. But then also, why is he going looking for wives halfway through? Why that? Given everything that happens afterwards, I was so confused. I think he, at that point, has not re- has not come to the realization for himself that God's will is to end humanity completely i think at that point he still is thinking like we're part of the rebuild and then upon seeing how awful humanity is and how impossible it is for him to find innocent wives Mm -hmm. uh, he gives up on that and and reevaluates. yeah he definitely goes through phases you know like you know that's definitely the mark the turn of one phase to another because i think he goes there he's like Mm -hmm. at that point he's capable of doing something just because you know oh yeah, that'll make my kids happy, you know, and, you know, not in a flippant, you know, uh, getting them a doll type sense, but, you know, in a Mm -hmm. help them become entire human beings happy, you know, sort of thing and let, you know, and it's only after that, that he no longer thinks that that's possible. If they, if he's going through phases, I I think that Hannah, the, the thing that you took issue with actually makes sense to me because 
If he is actually revising his vision as the story goes on, then it makes sense to me that his family would go, of course, you want us to all come on the Ark, and then we'll get back off the Ark, and we'll start humanity again, and that's fun, and we saved all the animals. And then if that evolves into, also, we will die out, and humanity will be gone, and you never get to fuck, then I can see why they become upset with him. The, the question, I, I kind of texted Ethan about this beforehand, because I was a little distracted during the movie, and I, I maybe missed the part where he very emphatically was like, and we shall not have children. And in the book, it does come pretty late. It's at the table when they're already on the ark, and he does the, let me give you a slideshow about the creation of the universe. In that scene, he sort of offhandedly goes, and then, of course, you know, after the flood, we will die off, and, and the animal kingdom will, will reign on. And everyone is, quietly is like, wait, wait we will? Okay. Yeah, I think he's reached that conclusion long before that point. But I think, you know, the, his choice not to tell anybody other than, I think he does tell his wife, but, you know, their choice not to tell anyone else is a dramatically interesting thing that they don't go into at all. You know, like, mm -hmm. does he owe them some kind of honesty, even if it would mean that they wouldn't, might not help him build the Ark if he told them that at an earlier point, you know? I mean, coupled with his response to Ela's miracle, like, God has given her the gift of childbearing. And his response to that is, but he doesn't want it, we'll kill it. <laughs> a, an interesting, complicated, like, once he's decided no more humanity, he means it, in spite of the evidence of other miracles. Well, in the movie, I have a hard time with that, too. <laughs> yeah, it seems like the, the movie was a little different from my memory of the book for that part, which is that he seems to think that, to call it something that Methuselah did, not that something that God did. It's like he's like, yeah. you know, it's like mm -hmm. my wife went to Methuselah and made sad eyes at him, so he did this unholy thing, you know, which I yes. think, you know, given yeah. how, you know, sort of literally godlike Methuselah is, that seems pretty, like, blinkered on his part, but, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, this is where I wish I had a little more biblical something to be like, what is the Methuselah? Is he... In the Bible, do we see him as like a wizard who can do miracles that are separate from God? Or is he a, a, a man through which God moves? And I don't know how I'm supposed to read him in this story, let alone like in the cultural lexicon. In the Bible, there's practically that nothing about him. That might inform some of that. Yeah. So cool, that, cool, cool. Made up. <laughs> He's analogous to somebody like, say, Moses, for instance, who is given a mm -hmm. lot of, you know, God-given power and does sometimes use it for, you know, like, less than the noblest ends, you know, and gets punished for it, stuff like mm -hmm. that. So, so he, it, it's biblical-like, it's biblical you know, without really being strictly biblical. Biblicalish. Cool. Yeah. Biblish. <laughs> Ethan, you texted me while watching this film uh, to profess that as far as you had seen in the first hour, it was an absolute masterpiece that you felt like culture should essentially revolve around. Uh, what was your experience rewatching this, uh, I, I guess, in the second hour, since I only heard from you after the first one? And then also, uh, how did you, you feel about the book? Uh, second hour is not as good as the first one. Um, <laughs> No, I watched the first hour and I did. I texted Andrew, why are we not all talking about this movie all the time? Because um, I think the first hour of this movie completely rips. And then I think it really, really slows down uh, after the flood comes. 
and I think the second hour is is mm-hmm. somewhat turgid, um, which is a bummer because I think the first hour completely rocks. I love everything about the giant monsters, and it bums me out when they go to heaven. They shouldn't. Uh, they should <laughs> hang around and keep being pals for the rest of the movie. Oh, not um, that you hate them. I thought you were being big <laughs> watchers. Oh no, I love the watchers. I want more of them. Um, and I love the way the the uh, creation story is depicted. All all the backstory is done in that weird like shadow play way. That was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the part where he goes to the man city, and it's all just the worst nightmare imaginable. I love that nasty, crazy stuff. I'm not a huge Darren Aronofsky person, is anybody? Um, but this movie really worked for me. Um, and then the book, like I said, I, I just thought it was a little like it could have moved a little faster for my needs. Mm. But I thought it was like decently well written as, uh, you know, I've only read a handful of these things so far. And I think this, this one's all right. It certainly went by quicker than I expected a novelization of this length to go. I mean, the book looks like a brick, and I was able to sit down and read for an hour and get through something like 50 pages. I could absolutely chug this thing. It was fine. Did it taste good? Eh, it was fine. But (laughs) it wasn't... I mean, the worst types of novelizations are the ones where it's not only doing very little, but it's this massive time commitment. And it felt like this was somewhere in the middle. Mm. I was turning pages. That's true. It's skimmable as well. Mm. I think in the ways we talked about, where like what he's adding is is out exterior description. You're like, yeah, I get it. Bad place. Turn in the page. Skim, skim, skim. Moving fast. You can definitely tell from the first from the first, you know, like like the teacher in writing class. You can tell from the first sentence of each paragraph what that paragraph is going to be like and decide <laughs> yes. whether it deserves your attention. You know, I may have been unconsciously doing that. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the first description of the Watchers. Uh, speaking, Ethan, of your love of of the Watchers, it's also yes. very funny that uh, the the Watchers, which I believe are the same myth as the the, the Nephilim, uh, they mm-hmm. are a conspiracy theory that has resurged within the last couple weeks. Mm-hmm. People are it has yeah. There's, Pardon? I'm not up on this what? exactly, but there's, there's, there's Watchers some, around. There's some conspiracy theory that Nephilim are real and that. Uh, that certain militaries have been have been sneakily trained to fight them. That like <laughs> Google you go to the News military Nephilim. and they're like, okay, well, when you're out in those mountains, if you need to aim a little high, wink, <laughs> that sort of thing. Anyway, it's so just... my understanding of Nephilim is that they're just like half angel, half people, mostly people. Yeah, the Watchers would be the so pa- like what <laughs> the Watchers would be the parents of the Nephilim. Basically, they, oh. you know, since they were exiled to, They're since just they were exiled to Earth while they were there, they decided to get busy, which, you know, in the bodies that we see them in this would be pretty strange. <laughs> <laughs> Straight up. Okay, well, then I guess they are the parents of the Nephilim. But it is funny that it, within the last hmm. couple of weeks, Nephilim conspiracy theories have just suddenly started being a thing. Uh, Where are you looking in your daily life that you are running across Nephilim <laughs> conspiracy theories? Yeah, yep. good question. Yeah, that is a good question. So here's the description of the Watchers. Uh, Specifically, I think of Og. It says, The Watchers squatting at the front of the silent group appeared to be their leader. It was certainly the oldest and most grizzled, its cratered flesh barnacled with stony growths and scarred with deep rivulets. Its face was terrible to behold, 
its mouth a yawning chasm, its features unbalanced, asymmetrical, as if it wore a stone mask that had been shattered and inexpertly repaired. One black eye glared from halfway down its cheek, while the other glinted like a beetle from a crater in the center of its forehead. With a grating creak of stone, the creature leaned forward, bringing its terrible visage close to Noah's own. It studied him closely, its hot, sulfurous breath washing over him, stirring his hair. It spoke in a voice like a subterranean shifting of rock. This one's pretty good because it's the same sort of thing Morris does all the time, except we're going to spend a lot of time with Og and his kind. So this is actually a, a description that I mentally return to all the time as we see the Watchers do the craziest stuff imaginable for two more hours. And fun fact, you could apply that whole description just to Nick Nolte's mugshot. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there is some complaints to be made with the design of the Watchers. They look cool. I can't tell Mm -hmm. any of them apart. I don't know who I'm looking at at any moment. And especially when they start to die, I'm like, I want to be specifically sad for Og, our friend. And I don't know which one. Well, he has kind of this. Don't know which one. There's this sadness. I feel. I I I mean, the book helps because there's a name. Yeah, but I I sort of read this sadness into his face that I didn't really see in the other ones. Mm. You know, like so so like, and I thought that was for that very reason that like you know right before we Mm. see him die, we're like, oh, it's that one. He's got sort of the 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 upside down smile. But I spent way too much time listening to each one, trying to figure out which one was Nick Nolte. And then once Nick Nolte talked, I was like, oh, <laughs> definitely that one. No, no effect needed on his voice whatsoever. Yeah. I'm horrified to discover that maybe I don't have the part where the Watchers ascend to heaven bookmarked. The most important thing in the book. Mm, let's see. I won't help you. I don't know. I have it either. While we look for that, um, is it weird that the ark is just a box? It's not <laughs> like a boat? It's a little weird. <laughs> it's a little weird, right? That surprised me. Just a big tissue box floating on the ocean. Yeah, I thought maybe it would be more boat, but... And it's mostly underwater, I- isn't it? It does seem to sit very low in the water, yeah. That's why they have to seal it up with pitch. I was going to say, they have that sealed up really good, given that they have no pumps or anything like that. It's a water leak thing. (laughs) Here we go. This is the death of a watcher. The first death of a watcher, as many will fall. This is probably my my favorite part of the book. Uh, It says, Part of the huge watcher's head was ripped away in an explosion of stone and fire and he crashed to the ground dead. Through the roar of the rain, Noah heard a ragged cheer from the giant's assailants, but then the cheering turned to consternation, and then to cries of alarm. The men gathering around the Watcher's fallen body, like insects attracted to carrion, began to back away. The Watcher's chest had started to glow, and even more astonishingly, the vertical sheets of rain which were falling on and around him suddenly began to bend, to pull back, as though creating a funnel that led directly to the heavens. Then the cries became screams as, with an ear-splitting crackle, a single bolt of lightning shot up out of the Watcher's chest and into the black, rain-lashed sky. It hung there like a rope of light connecting the world of men to the heavens, lighting up the white, gaping faces of Tubal-Cain's army like a million candle flames. 
Their screams of panic intensified as the Watcher's body suddenly exploded into thousands of pieces, sending men flying in all directions. For a moment, the fighting stopped. Watchers and men gazing in astonishment as something white and pure and brilliant began to rise from the debris of the body. Og, Samiyaza, and the other Watchers recognized it immediately, and then Noah knew what it was. It was the Watcher's true form. It was their brother, as he had been before falling to the earthly plane, transformed once again into an expanding pillar of pure energy. Somewhere within the column of radiance, six great wings unfurled. And then they start yelling, The Creator brings him home! Our redemption is secure! And then they're just not, they're, they start fighting like crazy, because they go, Oh, that's right, I'm God's little boy, and if you kill me now, I'll just go straight up to heaven. And I hated that in the movie, because this, this is the best part of the book, this is the best page of the book, and I hate that in the movie, <laughs> the Watchers die, and then it's just sort of beam me up, Scotty. It's just, whoop! <laughs> there he goes. Should be earth-shattering. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry that happened to you. <laughs> I, mean, I think it's also a little bit, um, there's the one watcher, the last one maybe, who like opens himself up in order to yep. knock back or kill a bunch of men. He suicide vests is, himself somehow. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh-huh. And it all feels a little mm, to me. How so? Um, uh, <laughs> I mean, the, I don't know how to exp- how to say it without, I don't know, I guess I maybe just have to say it. Um, I think that the, like, the religious crusade of, like, throw yourself upon the fire for the glory of God kill yourself so that god can thrive and whatever is a really bad uh justification for war and death that we have done as a society forever and so much of this story is about like not engaging in like the the human impulse towards death and killing that to see the watchers be like we love to kill man and it's good for us and it will take us straight to heaven is like exactly how medieval England justified crusades in the Middle East and slaughter and crimes and awful things. And so to see it placed in a better light here in like a, this is a justifiable, righteous um, suicide, <laughs> whatever, uh, didn't sit right with me. I think that makes total sense, but I also think that a stone creature pulling his own chest apart to reveal that his heart is a god bomb is cool. <laughs> sure, yeah. I mean, yeah. I like angels and stuff. I'm intrigued by the conceit of the angels who are trapped in the muck of the earth, and once they're able to open it up and reveal their true form, they can only do good things with it and then return to God's love. I'm into it. I just, within the context, feels a little, a little icky to me. I hear you. Anybody else want to save me from this? It didn't come I up mean, for me. I just thought it looked <laughs> cool when the god bomb went off. <laughs> I mean, I think the buy-in of a story in which is about, like, you know, we're going to kill, like, the vast, vast, vast majority of humanity, which is bad people, so that this small group of good mm-hmm. people can live without, you know, being troubled by them. You know, it, you know it's inherently genocidal and so like i think you know you either yeah i mean no one is so troubled by it 
<laughs> is the thing. Like, th- if, if they were like, this is good and righteous, we love it, I could get into that mindset. Mm. But there's that whole scene where they're on the boat early on, it's still raining, they're hearing people screaming outside. Oh, the outside. people, oh my god. Yes, and Shem and oh Ham and Ia are like, let's help some people. Like, we can save a few people, right? And Noah's like, no, they have to die. And they're all really torn up about it. That's brutal stuff. And That's it's got rough. And it's got an irony on top of it because, like, you know, they're not willing to save these random, like, seemingly helpless people. Whereas, you know, Ham is already saving literally the worst pers- possible person is already on the boat. <laughs> hmm. Which. And his art, I mean, Ham's argument about Nael that, like, she was innocent. There's innocent people out there among mm. the bad people. And you just let them get wiped away too is a strong one. I think it's. Possible. I mean, one thing I found interesting in retrospect is I think it's possible, even in terms of the the book, and even maybe more so the movie, that like Noah actually makes the wrong decision about her. I mean, not just from our point mm-hmm. of view outside the movie looking into it, but even within the morality of the movie itself. You know, because and the idea is, you know, he's not perfect. He's just fitted for the job. You know, that has to be done. But you know, because like during his like weird first you know, thing that kind of is a nightmare and kind of isn't, you know, he sees them set that trap that catches Niel. So it's almost mm. as if he's being given the information either to help her to like, you know, avoid it if he had come with him to help or to open the trap up again. You know, he's been given that information, but he chooses not to use it in order to try to get away. And then they get overtaken by the army anyway, you know, and like the army just ignores them for some reason, which seemed kind of weird to me, but... I mean, I guess, you know, there's so many of them, they just don't, un- they don't recognize Noah as being different from them. But. Mm-hmm. The book makes a point that most of them are refugees, not soldiers. And uh, so they're, they're all sort of in the same dirty, grumpy visual thing style. <laughs> yeah. When Ham and Niel are overtaken by Tubal Cain's army, uh, or is it other characters? Two characters are overtaken by Tubal Cain's army in the book. And that point is just explicitly made, which is that it is such a ragtag, motley crew of an army that no one even notices that they've overtaken people who aren't them. And they certainly don't notice, hey, these are the sons of Noah or whatever. They're just like, Mm -hmm. yeah, people, that's what we are. That makes sense. But it does argue against their rush to the Ark is their priority. Right, but it, it does argue a little bit against Noah's thing that you know we can't possibly like stop and save Niel, you know, because the the the, the army is coming, and it's like, well, the army is just going to wash over you without paying any attention. Hmm. Hannah, your uh, trouble with the contradictory idea of they believe in him having the vision, but they don't like a lot of his actions. I I I totally get where you're coming from, but it also feels like mm-hmm. that's the element that makes it an Aronofsky film, right? Is that sure. it's this this level of obsession that it's almost what makes watching an Aronofsky boring to me for the most part is when I see the element of the character's obsession come up, I go, there's really no chance that this movie will become something in which the character bucks this obsession or anything like that because his his core interest I feel is just the absolute pursuit of something to the degradation of all other things, right? And here it, it is interesting 
I find it very boring in a thing like Pi, right? Uh, uh, Pi, a, a movie that certainly has multiple characters, but it's mostly that one guy. And we're just watching this one guy get weirder and weirder and weirder, and then the movie fucking ends. And it's like, okay. In this one, I find it very helpful that he has this family around him who's reacting to what he does, because their reactions are this uh, interesting barometer for what's normal and what isn't. At the beginning, they're like, yes, we're all religious zealots. Right, right, right. Rains will come. Giant flood. You'll be the one to save us. We believe all of that. We love it. And then eventually, they slowly get us to the point of, we're not going to let you kill your own grandchildren. You've actually out-crazied your crazy-ass family. And I think, I don't know, I, I, I don't much like Aronofsky. I think that this film is maybe my favorite of his I've seen. Uh, just because it's definitely like the most palatable. Yeah, uh, th- like your previous art- answer was mother, which was a bonkers answer. I want to see this whole universe <laughs> fleshed out. I want to see. So he's done. What if God a dick? He's done. What if Noah a dick? Let's do it with every biblical character. Character assassinations on everybody. What if Mary, mother of God, kind of mean sometimes? What if, you know, let's just do them all. Let's do the whole, everyone who is at the Last Supper. <laughs> yeah, for the record, Mother is my favorite, possibly my favorite film of the 21st century. Yeah. Uh, really? My favorite during Aronofsky, yeah. That is a, that is a, that's a thrilling thing to say. You've <laughs> enlivened my evening. Which is funny, I saw it within two weeks of like Get Out, which might be my second favorite film of the 21st century. So it's like, oh wow, films are going to be really great. You know, like I got these two in two weeks, and then, you know, after that, it slowed down a little bit. Highs and lows, you know? <laughs> but, you know, as a, and of course, you know, that one, you know, thinking about the obsession thing, and that one, the main character isn't the person with the obsession, it's the person who has to live with the person with the obsession. I mean, depending on exactly how you define your terms and that. Right, right. That you know. mm-hmm. I, I just think the obsession angle works really well in this because it sets up the initial arc of the story, which is this very material conflict. And then at the point where the material conflict is resolved, when they're all on the boat, they've told us enough about this character, put enough momentum behind his obsession that he becomes the problem. And I don't know, it's just a very satisfying shape of a story for me. I am extremely confused as to where we're supposed to land. Uh, Re, did God want him to kill those babies? Uh, Did God really want him to leave the girl, Niall, in the woods? What's going on with all that? Because the movie kind of balks at the last second. It goes, he doesn't kill the babies, and mostly, that's fine. I think the movie thinks he's a little bit, you know, taking things a little far. Um, that's, yeah. you know, I, I tend to, to take the maybe simplistic read that God wanted this group of people to survive um, and that, that it is Noah's sort of panicky misinterpretation. That's, that's how I read it, at least um, on screen. In the book, I felt more certain of that, of what, you know, of what you're saying than I did with the movie. With the movie, I thought, I mean, maybe it was me once again reading into like Aronofsky's reasons for writing this in the first place, but I, I, I could almost feel an undercurrent of, and Noah was kind of right because we have messed up the new world too, you know, like yeah. in, in looking at it in, in retrospect. Mm. 
but in the mo- the book is much more explicitly, you know, like I was like, oh look, it's a pro-, you know the the rainbow and it's a promise and stuff like that. And like in the movie, they have the rainbow, but I don't think they talk about it. Yeah, I mean, there was also the moment where in trying to convince him not to kill the babies. Name argues to him, God sent us what we needed, two girls. <laughs> Which is a little gross, but part of how it goes. Yeah, like, kind of, is that the plan? It's kind of hard to escape that part, you know, like, if they're going to repopulate <laughs> the, the world again. Like, you know, God, hopefully God set up all the genetics just right, you know. <laughs> he clearly did. <laughs> I spent some time on uh, Christian subreddits today, reading about people's interpretations of this movie. Mostly because I was trying to suss out how much of it was pulled from completely unrelated apocryphal religious texts and, and, and stuff like that. Uh, and yeah, there's a lot of people just being like, hey, how do any of the humans survive given all the inbreeding? And then they'll, they'll have this, the thought, and also how do any of the animals survive? And then inevitably some other angry Christian replies and goes, so are you intending to take this all literally? Because that's not going to serve you very well in your journey with God. If you want to take it literally, you have to ad- acknowledge the hand of God within everything. And therefore, God is just saying, like, we're making it work until we have enough diversity to start having incest be a problem. But for the first X number of generations, I say it's not a problem. I'm God. And you just have to be like cool with that, right? Mm-hmm. This is the first time I've thinking, kind of you know, even- seen myself in God, because that really sounds a lot like my parenting style. It's just like, we're going to figure it out. Stop it. <laughs> and also, like, the predator animals are just not going to eat anything for a couple of years until the prey animals have a little chance to, like, you know, reproduce a bit, you know. Like, maybe they wake them up last or something. <laughs> Man, that this guy, Noah, I, I, it never occurred to me as a kid. I, you know, I imagined two of every animal marching on this, this ark, and you always think, you know, two camels, two horses, two kitty cats, two dogs. And this guy was covering any, every genus, every, every <laughs> friggin' species. He's got hundreds well, of snakes on that boat. We don't have I any. Love every time they cut to a shot with this, like, piles of snakes <laughs> on the floor. Well, where's our scaly dogs? Did they not make any scaly dogs make it onto make the boat? It. Yeah, yeah. Do we not I see mean, them I make it on? I do appreciate when Tubal Cain is like killing things to eat on the ship, there's animals that I'm like, well, that's not an animal yes, in the right. world. These are weird made up animals that didn't make it. Yeah, as somebody who read the book first and then and then saw the movie, I was hoping for a lot more of that actually and for it to be better lit, you know, like cuz I was like, <laughs> oh, so this is a chance to put like any kind of like fantastical or prehistoric or whatever thing on there Where but like you know the unicorns yeah but it's very much backgrounded by the actual story mm. i guess people i, I felt like they could have played that up comedically a little bit more just having tubal cane mm. eating winged beavers and stuff or a unicorn <laughs> you know like like uh mm-hmm. hitler and jojo rabbit yeah. you know <laughs> god that just gave me such a flashback to a book i had when i was little that showed unicorns trying to board the ark and not getting let on, and they're crying, and it was very upsetting to me. <laughs> he should have put that As in. As it would be. There's yeah. a whole song about that. <laughs> I mean, you have to justify why you don't let the unicorns on, and maybe that's just something that wasn't time for in this movie. You can't just turn them away whole cloth for cuz, you know. I have a question Yeah. <laughs> while we're talking about the animals of the ark. 
So he just, the God was like, all fish are good. Not going to worry about fish. Well, I guess fish just aren't Noah's responsibility would be my way. Do you know where <laughs> fish are, Hannah? Do yeah, you- this is what I'm saying. Like, they're not getting washed away by the flood. So, like, is that why there's so many freaks in the ocean? Is that why deep sea creatures are fucking crazy? Because mm. they didn't get, like, swept away? I so, think like, so. Leviathan I think so. Still down there. Yeah. There's even that funny moment when, when Noah's describing god creating everything and he goes uh then of course he created the waters uh deep down they were populated by animals that are are no longer around and then he weirdly backtracks for a second and he goes some of them might be still around and there might still there's weird there's a lot of stuff down there (laughs) there's weird shit down there he does it more gracefully than that but it is this weird of course all those are gone but i don't really know that's deep that's deep we haven't been into the ocean in a long time. <laughs> They're going to take it, what, everything that walks, everything that crawls, everything that creeps. So I guess that the fish are, out, mm-hmm. are, are not included in that. Not part of that. I do really, I mean, this is not totally captured in the book, but the moment when all the snakes and lizards and shit come up to the ark and his family is like, yikes, them too? <laughs> and the look on Russell Crowe's face is like, yeah, snakes! <laughs> snakes! <laughs> A perfect performance moment. I loved it a lot. <laughs> I'll kill my own grandchildren, but I love snakes. He loves Look the at sexy... them coming. Here they are. He loves the sexy slither of a lady snake. Ethan, in support <laughs> of your point that the movie maybe I like how wants this sentence is starting. That uh, Noah is taking things too far. I do love the point in the movie and the book where he learns of his grandchildren. The rain stops, and Shem's like, the rain stopped due to the miracle of my children. And Noah goes, the rain stopped because you're not supposed to have, have children, okay? <laughs> That's why the rain stopped. I'm the, I'm the guy. I'm the guy who has the visions. The rain stopped because, of the, because it's bad, not because it's good. <laughs> this is the difficulty of prophecy, right? How do you interpret the visions? What if you get it wrong? It's one thing when God comes down to you and says, here's an ark, here's the specifications, you're going to build it just so. And you're like, got it, buddy. But the rain stops? What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also think it's, it's funny it's that uh, other characters, not Noah and his family, were able to discern which rain was going to be the rain. Doesn't it rain sometimes? Tubal Cain feels a drop of rain. And he goes, of course, the great rain that Noah foretold of, now I have to go to his ark. The vibe it I'm getting like from the rain. yeah the the e- ecological situation here is not giving me a lot of rain. Oh, mm. oh. I agree. In the opening sequence, I guess after we have the flashback with Noah and his father, once Noah is a grown up with children, there's a part where he like sees water fall from the sky. A little flower comes up, and he's like, "Dang, I've never seen that before." And I think it is both the rain oh. and the flower to me. That's how I read, interpreted that. Interesting. And would you say, like, I mean, the, the, the landscape looks basically the same when, like, uh, Lamech is teaching Noah, you know, the stuff before Lamech gets killed, as it does mm-hmm. when, Le- when Noah's out with his sons, like, perhaps indicating that, you know, it's been like this for a long, you know, it, it's been on the Bob, down, it looks so the, similar slow to slide I for thought, a long time. Did we actually mm-hmm. time jump? Because right. they, it feels like they didn't do anything with the set. 
I would say Lamech has to be like yeah, the well, most. Yeah, we've decimated the Earth, so Lamech has to be the most shafted character in this because, like, Methuselah is the super guy who can create you know walls of fire out of nowhere and like you know make barren women have you know give birth. And Noah, you know, is a badass in a lot of different ways. And Lamech just goes out like a chump, just like. Uh. Poor guy. It's like skips a gen, you know, like all the superpowers skip a generation or something. <laughs> so all of his kids are screwed. Oh yeah. Well, well, they seem you to know, be screwed. Ham is cursed, right? Ham and his children get a curse upon which we all live with to this day, right? And so I don't think anything good happens to Shem. <laughs> Wait, am I descended of Ham? Is that what I meant to believe? Um, maybe? Which I guess it's Ham I, and I one have... of those babies who grew up, and, you know, like, he comes back or something, because it's oh. not like there are other people to find, like, you know, because people, you know, talk yeah. about, like, where did Cain find his wife? Well, at least Cain didn't, you know, wasn't walking around after a flood that killed literally everybody. Well, well, uh, Bob, <laughs> the Bible has never been afraid to just, apropos of nothing, go, and then Rachel and Sarah entered the garden. They, The, the Bible loves oh, sure, to go, sure. not explaining this. Yeah. I mean, having Genesis open on my computer here before me, it literally is just like, they landed on the ground, and Ham, who was, of course, the father of canon, does this. And you're like, there's kids? (laughs) (laughs) Implying that they had families before the flood and the entire, it's a larger family who ends up on the Ark, which avoids some of these genetic problems. Though not really, because we're only like eight generations back from Adam and Eve. It's not, we're not that far. Let's talk about the shittiness of Noah a little bit more, because I feel like the book mm-hmm. lays track to essentially point the finger at him as a villain, and then just never really squares the circle, never really totally gets there. Um, there are these moments when Noah goes and sees the absolute squalor of Tubal Cain's kingdom, where he, is, he refuses to act when he sees uh, injustice occurring. So the first one is, um, with an animal-like roar, a bearded man in a filthy tunic burst from the tent and lunged at her, this is a little girl, as she tried to flee, grabbing her by the hair. She screamed as the man yanked her off her feet and dragged her back toward the tent. Noah itched to intervene, but he knew that what he was witnessing was merely a drop in the vast ocean of man's cruelty an ocean that would soon be engulfed by one altogether more devastating, and that any interference on his part would prove ultimately pointless. Hard to kind of be on his side there. Then on the next page, it's, he's seeing more terrible stuff. It says, Noah was sickened. He would have liked nothing better than to bury a knife deep between the man's shoulder blades as the guy killing and raping. But he held back and reminded himself that this incident was no more than an example of all that the Creator wanted to eradicate. Perhaps, he thought, the creator was even showing it to him in order to test his resolve, his strength of character, his ability to remain focused on the true and ultimate goal. It really feels like Morris is setting us up for an ending, and I started to think, is this the ending to the actual movie? Where they go, thank you for rescuing us, Noah, you were right up to a point, but now we have to kill you, or maroon you, or something. You've become a completely amoral dipshit. Mm, not what happens, though. Not what happens. And, 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 and it's... F- How much of that are we meant to believe is, like, guilt over I almost killed my grandkids versus guilt over I killed the entire world 
versus guilt over I betrayed God and I did the wrong thing when I didn't kill my grandkids. Which one of it is it? I think it's just uncertainty. You know, just not knowing which of those things were good and which of those things were bad and Mm. not wanting to play the game anymore. The novel insists that it's him feeling that he should have killed his grandchildren and that he was not the ultimate unyielding tool Mm. of God that he claimed to be when his son went, I thought you were good. And he's like, God didn't choose me because I was good. God chose me because I've got follow through. Uh, you know, it, 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 the book is really such saying, a crazy thing to say after the opening hundred pages where Noah's like, I'm the best guy. I don't eat meat. We're good. We are the good people. I'm good. That's exactly <laughs> it. it. It doesn't make any sense to me that the character is set up that way. And then when he goes to Tubalcane's compound or whatever, he is prideful of not intervening. Here's one more, just from the next page. It says, uh, but, 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 but the many terrible sights that he had witnessed made him more positive than ever that the creator was right, that mankind was wicked beyond redemption and should be swept from the world. Noah had no doubt that even the children, innocent victims though they seemed, had been seeded with corruption. Those seeds would, in time, inevitably bloom and blacken their souls poisoning them with the cruelty and hatred of their parents as their innocence shriveled and died. Maybe, but isn't it a big thing with religion that, you know, you can ask for forgiveness for things? So to look at children who have not yet sinned and say those sins not yet committed have already condemned them, I mean... We haven't invented confession and absolution yet, I guess. (laughs) Hmm. It's, com- it's complicated, right? These are the questions that religious scholars have been trying and struggling with for thousands of years. Yeah, I mean... Or- Whether Darren Aronofsky is doing a perfect job of it, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, original sin is right there. Mm-hmm. I'm it's game like he's discovering for it for the first time. Or a movie that's yeah. written from the perspective of Old Testament God is real and he rules. I think that's an interesting concept. You know, we can't control whether the person who made us is an asshole or not, and maybe he is. And we would just have to deal with that if that mm-hmm. were true. But I don't like the ending of the story because it doesn't commit to either direction. It has him not follow through with the terrible thing he would have to do to be in alignment with God, but then also it gives him something approximating a happy ending with being welcomed back in. They see a sign that everything will be okay in the heavens. I don't understand what I meant to believe should have happened with the killing babies thing. I don't think God believes in killing babies. I don't think he wants that. I mean, the, the Abraham and Isaac story is the key example of God said, no, 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 don't kill the fucking kid, right? <laughs> um, so I, I think that what happens is what is meant to happen by God's will. I and agree. we don't have to know what God thinks. I mean, there's that argument Ela makes right at the end where she's like, um, to a child, a parent is like the creator, which is a little heavy handed, but we get it. <laughs> um, but like, she's right. We don't know our parents and God, both all knowing and all powerful and all correct and not. And we'll never always know like the intention and the, the end goal of other people, even God. I mean, I guess I would think, you know, God chose to do, you know, some of this himself and some of it through a human instrument. 
And he's got to know that by doing it through a human instrument, that means you're not going to get exactly what you asked for. You know, you're, yeah. uh, you know, there, there's going to be this human element in it, and the, the end product is going to vary. If God really wanted those babies dead, he would have killed them. Mm. But I don't think he did. Or, you know, not allowed them to be conceived in the miraculously conceived in the first place. <laughs> right. <laughs> Something I found interesting about the Bible story is God is speaking very directly to Noah in very clear quotes. And Aronofsky takes a very different approach to what, you know, how, how these things are to be interpreted. No room for interpretation in the Bible. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, Andrew, you once said to me that if someone you loved came to you and said, <laughs> I had a vision from God. You would have them committed. No, I didn't say I would have them committed. I just, I just personally don't. Uh, I, I pers- you would take that as a sign of immense mental illness. Not that immense needs help but I, and care. I just, I just don't, I just don't just a little bit. entertain such things as as divine intervention. It's not the lens through which I view the world. So I, 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 I would not be so so aggressive, and I certainly wouldn't say hateful things to the person. But I, I just, this is not what I'm. <laughs> It's not how my mind's operating. You would not believe Noah when he oh, said I had a vision from God. to say I wouldn't believe God. someone is for sure. That's like the actual <laughs> true thing. It's like if a friend came to me, and I have friends. I have friends who are like, you know, I was abducted by aliens and stuff like that. And I'm like, yeah, that's for you. That's for you. <laughs> and I'm sure you know other people you could talk to about that. Um, anyway. Well, here's something. That I was thinking might have caused a problem for you, Andrew, which is I feel like, especially as of halfway through, this seems like the closest anybody's come to, like, you know, making a biblical epic that really works as, like, high fantasy, you know, mm-hmm. but but doesn't get there because, you know, it turns into a morality tale at the end, you know, like as a kind of weird, twisted morality tale, but the... Uh, but that it gets, you know, in a way it tantalizes you, as you say, with, like, you know, well, like, why not just have a fantasy film where, you know, the, the God of the Bible is, you know, the, the good guy, you know, sort of thing. And that this film doesn't gets close to doing that without really doing that. Yeah, I think more so than than having a genre confusion issue. I, I'm OK with the idea that this is essentially high fantasy until they get on the arc and then it becomes something else that that seems interesting to me. I, I don't think either is fully executed right like as you say i don't think they take the high fantasy as far as it could go and i i think the interpersonal drama is a little half-baked but as a concept i like that i just don't understand the perspective of the film like we we talked through this a second ago a little bit like uh everything that noah did is is perhaps what god intended to happen and he wasn't supposed to kill the babies and and whatnot and that's that makes sense to me if it's a story about me acting in accordance with God today, right? Because I don't have this empirical evidence of God that Noah would have had at the time. Something that's chafing against me right now is he's a guy who not only is a part of evolving religious myth, he is a student of recent-ish, relatively recent, empirical religious myth, right? Even people who are against him, like Tubal Cain, acknowledge that there is a creator. He's just abandoned us. Everyone knows that this shit is real. And it bothers me that he's too in it to the point where he might consider killing these babies, but the right thing to do is to like f- 
fail the mission, as he understands it, but he also can't achieve the perspective to realize what we have realized. He should, like, why, why wouldn't a guy like this go, wait, maybe anything I do in this situation is what was meant to be done because I am in continuing religious myth. I don't know. It's, it's just, it bothers me that he is so assured of this one terrible thing he has to do if the conclusion is that he wasn't supposed to do it. It kind of works for me if the conclusion is that, yes, he did fail. I kind of wish his visions from God were a little more hands-on. Like, if God really said to him, like, kill those kids, and then he has the rest of his family going, like, that does not sound like God. <laughs> that sounds, you know, like that tension of, like, is what you're being told true? Is it, you know, is it God? It was God when he said build the ark, but now what are we doing? I mean, the fact that God steps back so hard in the back half of this movie, not even visions, like, Noah's not getting visions to kill kids. Mm -hmm. One more vision would make it a little bit clearer that he maybe misinterprets or something. Mm. But compared to the God of the Bible, who's very much like, hey, man, checking in again. <laughs> goes, Go forth and propagate. We love it. <laughs> you know? This is going to sound it crazy, but one of the black goats on deck six is God, and he's telling me to kill the babies. <laughs> Huge horns. <laughs> For some reason, it makes me think of in Last Temptation of Christ when, like, the little girl, you know, who seems like possibly probably the devil, like, you know, is talking to him and trying to get in and say, and you know, and he's thinking about like sleeping with his wife's sister, you know, and she's like, "Well, there are not many women. There's one woman with many faces." And it's like, you really are Satan, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> There's the the tension of like is the vision true is always compelling it's like true. is this god is it the devil is it illness and that's I like all of it i mean i think that's a big difference between like things that take place in our world and things that take place in biblical world is that there's almost never any question like mm -hmm. there might be characters who question that but they're always just like you know the very fringe bad people you know who would even question that this happened you know but like like but it's like you believe that there's a devil yeah, and that the it deceives people. How do you know that that's not happening this time? Well, it's like because it's not. Like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. You have to have faith, and sometimes that faith will lead you to the right place, and sometimes I guess it doesn't, and that's part of the deal. How do you all feel about Tubal Cain, the villain of this piece, Ray Winstone? Annoying. Feel... <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I I find the character uh, annoying. I I find him not a compelling antagonist i think it feels forced sticking him on the boat um this this element just bums me out a little bit as with many um like environmental disaster movies a twister if you will a day after tomorrow i don't need a human villain the villain totally. is the weather yeah i believe i've thought that way reading the book but watching the movie, I thought that Ray Winstone like put extra stuff, like beyond the script, beyond the book, into that character. That I found, I mean, you know, this just, mm -hmm. you know, this sort of seemingly justified, you know, frustration that God would, you know, judge him for doing the things that the world, you know, that the world kind of drove, that God created, drove him to. So I, I kind of, and I, the relationship with Ham, I did find in the movie more interesting and compelling than I did reading it on the page. 
I don't find that this character is is super compelling in and of himself. I only really like what he brings out of Ham. I like that, uh, especially in the book, it helps accelerate Ham towards this crisis point, which I think is especially well written. It's on 262. This is like the moment where Ham has led Noah into an ambush. And it's that feeling of he's literally leading him down the hall and he's feeling the regret of it, but he's also just feeling the crushing momentum of it. You know, can I even stop it at this point? It says, Ham felt sick. Now that the time had come, he wasn't sure that he wanted to go through with it. He was in turmoil, racked with guilt, torn between the instinctive love he felt for his father, whom he knew deep down was a good man, a man who loved the world so deeply that he was prepared to put aside his own compassion in order to preserve it and his conviction that his father must be punished for the callousness and cruelty he had shown in carrying out what he claimed were the Creator's wishes. If his father remained alive, then Shem and Illa and their baby would be lost, perhaps forever. The death of Niel, the girl Ham had promised and failed to protect, would go unavenged. But for a son to lead his own father, however misguided that father may be, unwittingly to his death, Ham's stomach cramped with shame. Was there a more heinous crime? Now that the wheels had been set in motion, however, he wasn't sure how to make them stop. He couldn't prevent his father from following him, couldn't simply turn and fend him off with an excuse, tell him he had been lying or that he had been mistaken. Nor could he confess the truth. And so, not sure what else to do, Ham kept running, scrambling down ladders which took them past the different layers of the reptile deck, hurrying along the main walkway, passing through corridors, hurtling down ladders. I, I just really found that satisfying, and I hadn't seen the film yet. I just, I spent a lot of the book going, Tubal Cain is so one-dimensional, he's so evil in his actions, he kills with total callousness, he kills Noah's father for no reason. Uh, it, it, why am I getting so much of him? Why do I have to read so much about Tubal Cain? But then it clicked for me in that passage. I went, well, now I really care about Ham, and I care about his predicament, and I see him as kind of sympathetic, and I'm, I kind of almost do want him to kill Noah sometimes. So, I don't know. Uh, functionally an interesting character, if kind of a dud as, like, a presence. Agreed. I mean, I like the, well, you know, the teenage rebellion of, like, my dad's kind of a jerk, and he doesn't want me to do the things I want to do, and here's this other guy who's, like, a cool paternal figure who's, like, handing me an axe, and it's cool. And then the more I get to know him, maybe he's scary, and maybe eating raw meat is gross. <laughs> Don't know that I love that. How do I reconcile these two father figures? Which is the way to go? How do I lead my adult life? I like that for him. I mean, I kind of hate to say it, but the the little like passivity and and blank at the center is sort of the the Logan Lerman magic, is it not? Uh, Lerman's good. Oh no, no, he isn't. He's yes, really he, bad he's... in this, Hannah. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> he's doing it with his eyes. Everybody's saddled with half of a British accent. That's not helping him. It's not helping Jennifer Connelly either. I think Lerman's perfectly fine in this film. And I have a more universal problem with him, seemingly. I don't. I I feel like I'm a pretty unbiased hater in this case because I, I have unbiased. no feelings about Lerman going into this. None. I don't. I can't even think of a thing he's in. Does he have all the reasons why? Is he that guy? 
He was a wallflower with perks. He was a wallflower <laughs> with perks. I did see that. Yeah. So uh, he, I don't, but I don't really have an opinion of him. And truly, from almost the first scene he was in, I, I, just, I just thought, terrible casting. Vacuous presence. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Wow. Wow. Well, how do you feel about Douglas Booth? Who's that? In this movie. Exactly. He plays Shem. <laughs> he's the British man playing Shem. Oh, he's fine. He's fine. It's, uh, it's something we haven't mentioned <laughs> that is sort of a constraint of the Bible naming characters that then have to appear in this movie is that this movie is, uh, a, of course, a, a fable of Noah and his fraught relationship with his sons. One who feels he's terribly wronged him. Another who wants to have children he's not allowed to have. And a third. And Jephthah. <laughs> and Jephthah. He's just there. He's just there. <laughs> he's like 10 years old. What are we going to do with him? He's like the, he has birds. He's like Peggy Schuyler in, Han- in Hamilton, basically. And he's like, and oh. Jephthah. And Peggy. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and I mean, even Shem doesn't get mm-hmm. that much interesting stuff to do. You know, he, his, I, I mean, his best scene is probably the one with Methuselah because all the scenes with Methuselah are great and yeah. other than that there's and him whining the that he wants son. sex with Hila you know and then there's uh... he's, he's pretty respectful of her we gotta give him credit I guess. she says like ouch and he's like okay I still love you it's okay yeah um, maybe in the book he was a little whinier actually, but, or I was, maybe I was reading that in yeah there's definitely more of him being like, oh, are you sure? <laughs> in the book. <laughs> than in the movie, he's bad. like, oh, does it still hurt? Okay, never mind. Was it New oh, my Testament brother's peeping. where they invented hand stuff? Like, it feels like there's workarounds. They're not big enough. <laughs> <laughs> Many, the, the, those, that stuff doesn't exist in <laughs> fictional universes, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, here's the deal, Andrew. I think the answer to that is that it is sinful to spill seed without trying to procreate at this point point wow wow so ham stuff is no good oh, can't it's bad you know they have that excuse it's like sex the par- or nothing they have that excuse the parents in a quiet place do not have that excuse this is gonna be me true. getting my first novelization gig nobody's gonna want to hire me and they also don't make them anymore so it's gonna it's gonna end up being one of those christian movies like they'll hire me to write, uh the chosen chosen again or whatever and uh it'll god's be, still uh, not dead i'll turn god <laughs> god still very oh much kicking yeah it's uh, god's not dead seven and or you could uh, do I'll left behind draft. novelization <laughs> uh, uh, i'll turn in my draft and it'll be uh very faithful except that i'll have put in too much hand stuff because it's me just empathizing <laughs> with the characters they, they look they, they can still be happy and then you know i get fired and then some Christian editor will be like, no, onanism, unacceptable. <laughs> I think that's what it is. I called. really liked your novelization, except for the part where they went to California to get an abortion. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No, I think that Shem comes to life once there is the, the threat upon his family. Then that character becomes more of like someone to engage with for 90 percent of the story he's just like a nice kid a dutiful son building an ark just going having i think dad's acting normally and then the moment he goes i'm gonna kill your children he goes now i think it's weird (laughs) (laughs) well that's the thing is he 
he's like, you know, perfect son, and then he becomes perfect husband slash father. And, you know, and I guess in contrast to Ham, there's never like the moment where you're not sure what he's going to be. You know, he, he's always pretty much mm-hmm. exactly what you would expect him to be. Good for Shem. <laughs> <laughs> like, good. He is, he is the line through which we get most of humanity. So good for him. Uh, okay. Good job. Yeah, I've, I've done a little family tree stuff on Wikipedia to clarify some of my own confusion about like how things shake out. Hannah Blackman. Uh-huh. You are wicked beyond redemption. You live in Tubal Cain's <laughs> little community yeah. of horrible sinners. The thing is, yeah. you fucking love it. You are mm-hmm. a... Because I'm bad. You are a, a warlord. You, you run some, some illicit casinos. You've got your hand in every sinful pot there is. And you can feel mm-hmm. that you've made enough enemies that your time is short anyway. So when the rain starts coming sure. down, you're like, bet, this rules. I get to dodge all of the things I've done and just die what some people say is a peaceful death. Drowning. Well, uh, I really thought awful, you just said actually. die wet. <laughs> I will die wet. That's true. So, I mean, what's happening is I'm going to drown, which actually I think is very painful and horrible, and then go to hell. So... This is a question I've had for a long Probably. time. Is Michael Caine telling the truth at the beginning or the end of the prestige? Is drowning the painful? The end. It's painful. Of course it's painful. It's the- Have you ever accidentally swallowed raw water the wrong way? I Come thought on. Raw the idea water. was that once you had a little bit of shaking around and hurting, that it was pretty good compared to others. It sounds horrific. This is, I'm going to go to bed right after we have this conversation, and I don't want this to be what I'm carrying in. <laughs> We'll have we have another five to ten minutes of chatting that will shake this thought out. Oh, oh yeah. Worry. Once once how bad would it be to drown is in my head. I'll just let that fly <laughs> right out. It will be awful. It is bad. <laughs> That's gonna happen to me in this hypothetical. It won't happen to you in your hypothetical, I promise. Good. Anyway, Hannah, you're gonna die wet and <laughs> you reach yeah. over to your bookshelf, scroll shelf. I don't know what's going on in those ages. Mm-hmm. You reach over to your scroll shelf and uh, you pick up your copy of Noah by Mark Morris, a novelization of the yeah. 2014 film, extremely faithful adaptation of the six lines from the Bible discussing this guy. <laughs> you think you'd enjoy that? Yeah. <laughs> Knowing what you know? Um, no. I think it wouldn't make me feel better about my personal lot in life uh, at all. It would make me feel great about like the future of humanity. Like just knowing that like this doesn't end. It ends on like an okay note. It's gonna be okay. It's rainbow, but it doesn't feel as good as I'd want it to be in my final moments of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I yeah, I thought that this thing is perfectly competently written. There's nothing wrong with it. It didn't excite me, and I have enough grappling questions that I feel like a novelization could have done more to sort of like nail down the perspective of the film that it doesn't, um, that I was not in love with this book. And I don't think that if I was going to read one book in my last 40 minutes of life, I wouldn't pull this one off the shelf. Wow. Not my choice. Wow. Ethan Warren, you are going to the movies to see Noah. They're (laughs) they're re-showing Noah. It's weird. Anyway. AMC does that thing that they've been doing recently that happened to me where they sell like two tickets and they mark the whole theater as sold out. Keeps happening. Something really weird happening at AMC lately. 
Uh, you're furious about this because you really wanted to see a movie you call the best first hour ever filmed. So when they tell you this, you pull open your chest, revealing that your heart is a god bomb, and <laughs> explode the lobby. Drinks going everywhere. Somehow, in heaven, they're like, great job. Here's a copy of Noah by Mark Morris. You read it. You think you'd like it? So here's the thing. I'm not going to spend a lot of time reading the book Noah in the scenario you described where I've ascended to the afterlife. I'm very busy. There's so much else to do. You're a hero. Um, you're like a, yeah. you're, you're a fallen There's angel. There's a bunch of cool returned. dead people to meet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, the first hour of this movie brings me to a place of ecstasy that I really value. And so much of that is audio and, and uh, video uh, components working in tandem. And all of that is lost on the page. And so, um, as I said, as I've said with a lot of these novelizations, I'd rather watch the movie again. Um, I don't, I don't need this, um, this one in particular. It, it brought so little else to the table, uh, aside from stew and had, uh, was, was just missing Nick Nolte's beautiful voice. So what, uh, what do I need? Bob Caster, you are attending a Christian elementary school and it's the scholastic book fair day you go to the gym they've turned it into a bunch of shelves you know that sort of wire plastic shelving that they use but there's a bunch of books missing you feel like the 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 priests and the nuns and whatnot came through and pulled off what they consider to be sinful there's just huge gaps in the shelves you've got books on there like overcomer god's not dead and of course noah by mark morris you pick up Noah because it's a pretty thick one. You figure you can read it for the rest of the year. Do you think you, as a little Christian child, have a good time? Uh, I think I'm pretty spellbound, actually. I, <laughs> I think <laughs> at that time, I would not have read anything remotely like it and uh, would have found it pretty fascinating. Um, wow. And, you know, not, the, you know, being in a place, you know, as Ethan says, you know, like, the movie has a lot, I think, that the book doesn't... has more that the book doesn't have than the other way around. So, if you know, living in a time where the movie doesn't exist, I think, makes the book, you know, automatically a lot more interesting. Andrew Overby, you are one of those little baby girls from the end of Noah. Mm-hmm. You're growing up. Maybe you get married to your uncle. It's a whole thing. Your life is complicated and rich. Mm-hmm. Um, and you take a day for yourself because you've earned it, sister. And you sit down to read the only book that your grandfather has, which is the official movie novelization of Noah, a novel by Mark Morris. <laughs> Knowing what you know, do you enjoy reading that? And do you recommend it to your twin sister who maybe also married one of your uncles? Here's the thing. I love my grandfather, who I only ever remember as a good guy who drinks a lot of wine. <laughs> and so I read this book, I report mm-hmm. back to him, uh, you've got to sue Mark Morris. There are passages in this that really make you seem batshit insane. They question your visions, grandfather, I would say, uh, <laughs> indignantly. Um, that being said, if I could get past the slander towards my grandpapa, I think that I would <laughs> enjoy sections of the book. I don't think I would recommend this to anyone. 
However, I've highlighted several passages in here I thought really popped, and it's just a case of, you know, if the book were half as long and had this many good passages, I'd say, this thing's really got something. This guy's got some pizzazz. I got a little extra from this book. I got a lot extra from this book, and most of it tasted like, you guessed it, water. (laughs) (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. I would say overall, Mm -hmm. don't recommend, but I don't hate that I read it. Bobcaster, thank you so much for coming on our little show. Thank you. Oh, yeah, this is I'm glad we read this one. This has been a great time, and it was, once again, a great excuse to finally watch this movie. And it was just great hearing you guys talk about it. Bob, what do you do? Where do you do it? And why? Um, I am, to some extent, an audio dramatist. You know, I, uh, the Immunities podcast we talked about before. Mm-hmm. Um, I also uh, have another podcast that's... Uh, Immunities is theoretically done for now. We did some number of seasons and no movie. And uh, le- uh, I have a new one coming out called Legacy Door. Um, you can find it wherever podcasts are podcasted. And it's a another uh it's sort of more of a serialized novel and it's sort of in more in the gothic cosmic horror sort of thing about cousins finding out terrible things about their family so that's a thing to find out um you can find more about that at legacydoor.wordpress.com and you can find immunities at immunitiesdrama.com incredible to our listeners please do remember to rate our podcast review it subscribe to it Check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash authorized pod. Also, if you give our podcast five stars on Apple or iTunes and leave a review in which you write a paragraph novelizing a scene from your favorite movie, we'll try to guess what movie that's from. We'll do it on the air. You'll get to hear it. We'll say your stupid little screen name. All right, donkey, donkey dude 41 <laughs> says. Luke Skywalker walked up to Vader and will be like, God, buddy, 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 anonymize this. Come on. I have to make a fanfic about someone doing it because no one's done it yet. Be the first. Be the first. It could be you. It could be you, dear listener. And as usual, I'm going to close out our episode here by reading a passage from a classic piece of literature. Please do tweet at AuthorizedPod if you think that you recognize what this is from. It was winter on the Ark, and Shem went to level three to see his three favorite things. Boy, snow, bird. All right, I gotta find better sources. Good night. Okay, this requires absolutely no explanation. Today's game asks, who we looking at as far as <laughs> Hollywood Bible roles go? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm.
This first picture, uh, no relevance to the game, just a picture I found, uh, Dancing with Jesus CD, uh, with the tagline featuring a host of miraculous moves. Love that. And <laughs> the move he's doing, not so promising as to his, uh, his prowess, but we give him you the You don't know what it looks doubt. like in motion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I guess no that's fact. true. I hey. guess that's true. He's hey. really, for the listener, got one arm swung out fully in front of him as if he's, like, snapping his fingers back and forth. That's kind of the vibe. All right, so the way this will work is I will show you an image from something. You'll tell me what it's from, and you'll also tell me what biblical figure this actor or actress is portraying. Uh, You'll buzz in with your first name to answer. Be that Hannah, Bob, or Ethan. All right, up first, who are we looking at? Ethan. Ethan Warren. Well, that's, I believe, David Bowie as, is it, uh, does he play Pontius Pilate in The Last Temptation of Christ? This is, of course, from The Last Temptation of Christ, in which David Bowie plays Pontius Pilate. He had regrets. Up next, who are we looking at? Wow. Nobody's got this one, huh? Haven't seen this movie, but this actress is third build, so I thought maybe kind of memorable. Well, Bob, this is, of course, is it Ten Commandments? Taya Hararit from Ben Hur. And I always forget that's like a biblical movie. It's a tale well, of a, the Christ. Two questions. I know it just feels like it's not. Tale <laughs> of the Christ. I see. Who is she playing biblically? She's of course playing the hero of everyone's favorite biblical book, Esther. Okay. <laughs> Fascinating. Great start. Up next, who we looking at? Hannah. Hannah Blackman. This is Joaquin Phoenix in that Jesus movie that never came out where he is playing Jesus. Did it ever come out? I, I will keep wondering. It about never this. came out in a way that I could see it. Wow. <laughs> so, Ethan or Bob, any, uh, any guesses at the movie? Was it just called Mary Magdalene or something? This is, of course. Joaquin Phoenix says Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene. Mm. Okay, I'll take one and I give Ethan one. Wow. I think that makes sense, as that is That's... exactly how it played out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Look, I am the scorekeeper, and I'm not trying to cheat here, you know? No, usually you, usually you have some charitable bend, but you literally just recapped, since he got one right and I got one right, I think the points <laughs> should do that, too. <laughs> yeah. Up next, who are we looking at? Hannah? Hannah Blackman. No, no, I'm sorry. I revoke my chime. I know who we're looking at in, in terms of the performer, but, but no more than who that. Who is it, Ethan? Well, that's a, a picture of Monica Bellucci doing her job of acting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Monica Bellucci, and uh, she's wearing some cloths. She definitely seems like she's from the time of Jesus. Uh, Bob. Is that from Passion of the Bob. Christ? Passion of the Christ? Bob, you are correct on the movie. Do you have a guess as to character? Mary, Mother of God. I would... This is, of course, Monica Bellucci in The Passion of the Christ playing Mary Magdalene. Uh-huh. Oh. I wonder if I wow. just wouldn't have known who she was when I saw that movie. I saw that movie in theaters to write it up for my high school newspaper, and I'm sure that was sensitive and thoughtful. <laughs> uh, I, I just must not have clocked her. Up next. Wait, first, was it, do, you, do you remember, was it a passion pun, the title of the Oh, my title? Movie? God, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, that been could have been time. it, too. God, I don't know. That, would be <laughs> <good>. <laughs> that was kind of my response to that movie. 
Up next, biblically speaking, who are we looking at? I mean, I know who we're looking at. Great. Who are we looking at actor-wise, Hannah? This is Chiwetel Ejiofor, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know in what, and I don't know as whom. Fantastic. Well, I didn't know this movie didn't come out or some shit. It's once again Mary Magdalene, where he plays uh, Joseph. Oh. Oh. Fun. Really fun. Well, no points for anybody on that one. As far as the good book goes, who are we looking at? Ethan. Oh. Ethan Warren. Is, is this Morgan Freeman as the character of God in Bruce Almighty? Ethan, this is, of course, Morgan Freeman as the character of God in Evan Almighty. Oh, no. <laughs> oh. Well, one point, Ethan. Pretty good. Thank you. Halfway there. I should have known that Andrew would be tricky. <laughs> this is the thing, Ethan. Y- y- even if you don't know the answer, you can kind of figure out <laughs> when I'm going to trick you and get there. Yeah. You're learning slowly, but you'll figure it out. Hannah had a very specific moment where she was like, this one game, the Rogue One game, is too dastardly and evil. And then the, after that game, she had me all figured out. <laughs> <laughs> We're friends. <laughs> We're friends. Up next, who are we looking at? Oh, Ethan, Ethan, Ethan. Ethan Warren. As Ted Neely as the character of Jesus Christ in the movie Jesus Christ Superstar, directed by Milos Forman, I want to say 1977. Oh, more information than required. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> I think that's late. But... Is, and is it, is it even Milos Forman? Did I get that right? No, it's not. Who is it? I, just was, I was just, words were falling out of my mouth. Who did that? Well, one? Ethan, you got both points, and then we had to take them both yeah. away because you said two wrong things. <laughs> Bob, who directed this movie? What's wrong with me? It is, uh, it's in little print. Norman here, Jewison. Uh, ah, that's right. Uh, Norman Jewison. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Up next, <laughs> who are we looking at? Here's another image. Who are we looking at? Well, I was going to make an informed guess. Not informed. I don't know. That this was some sort of VeggieTales situation, and that this is Jonah <laughs> of the whale. That's where I was headed with it. Hannah, you've absolutely earned the movie. Uh, uh, do you know any of these VeggieTales on screen's names? I've never seen a VeggieTale... I mean, I'm sure we've already discussed my religious background, but uh, no. Vegetable. You're vegetably yeah, I can, inclined. I can attest that this movie has an extremely like earwormy like salt like title song, but uh, oh. I heard it once and then like just had to like listen to it 50 more times to get it in my head. But uh, amazing. But that's all I know. About well, Hannah, I'm am- I'm amazed that you were even able to pick it out. This is, of course, what is it called? Big Ideas Jonah, a VeggieTales movie. And I don't know the characters' names. I would have believed anything. Up next, (laughs) our final slide. Who are we looking at? Is that? I think it is. What's his name again? Um. You know, him. Yeah. I, I don't know what this is from at all. Any it guesses to the character Jesus-y, he's playing? Though. This is, of course, Jeremy Davies in American Gods playing one of many versions of Jesus. I mean, I believe that maybe he is the American Jesus or the Catholic Jesus. There's so many Jesuses running around in that show. Oh, interesting. Could have fooled me. Hmm. Wow. I think the takeaway from this game is 
even cinematically, not a very devout group. (laughs) (laughs) Mm, Ethan, you won. You won the game. Bob, you were right. Jesus Christ Superstar was 73. Uh I was all jacked up by seeing Ted Neely. It always makes me happy. (laughs) Well, that's the thing with you and Ted Neely, Ethan, is that you see Ted Neely's face it makes you so happy you start spouting absolutely bullshit facts (laughs) it's true (laughs) oh my god that's ted neely the empire strikes back came out in 1932 (laughs) we know we know the power of a face